Dr. Dario Neri's academic career is one of the more decorated I've seen. He earned his PhD in chemistry from ETH Zurich, studying under the supervision of Nobel Prize winner, Professor Kurt Wutrich. His doctoral dissertation earned him the silver medal of ETH, the school's highest honor for outstanding theses. Dr. Neri's postdoctoral work was spent in the lab of another Nobel Prize winner, Sir Gregory Winter, at the Cambridge Center of Protein Engineering. In 1996, he returned to ETH Zurich as assistant professor in molecular structure biology. In 1999, he became professor of biomacromolecules in the Department of Chemistry and Applied Biosciences and remained there until 2020. During that tenure, he won the ISOBM Abbott Prize, the Amgen Dompe Biotech Award, the Proust Award, and the Phoenix Prize, and he's authored more than 400 publications in international scientific journals. I'm Matt Piller. This is the Business of Biotech, and on today's episode, we're going to learn why Dr. Neri walked away from his gleaming throne in academia to found Philogen and assume CEO and Chief Science Officer responsibilities there in 2020. We're also going to dissect some markers of the company's success from a deep pipeline boasting a couple of phase three assets to a state-of-the-art internal manufacturing facility and some big-time collaborations. Dr. Neri, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks a lot for the opportunity. It's my pleasure. We're, we're honored that you could make the time to join us. Um, and I, and I want to start at a likely place to start. I want to I start with the origin story of Philogen, which you know, in, in my brief research, I, I, I saw was technically founded back in 1996. Uh, but, but you know, looking at it on paper, it took you 24 years to go all in on it uh, as, as CEO and CSO. So tell us that story and, and why that sort of chronology. Well, with pleasure. It's a company that was started by myself and my two brothers, Duccio and Giovanni, basically because when I was still at the um, Cambridge Center for Protein Engineering uh, with Sir Gregory Winter, we made, I think, an important discovery. We generated uh, the first fully human antibodies capable of selective localization on tumor blood vessels, sparing normal tissue. So we were able to bring antibodies really to where you would like them to be. So we had the vision that if these molecules were good, we should try to turn them into products. That's how the company started. And little by little, the company has grown. Mm -hmm. So little by little, as I said, you know, the, the founding in 96, was it sort of a, a back burner endeavor or a side endeavor in the, in the interim, like between that time and, and, and when you, uh, you know, officially assumed the responsibility that you have now? No, actually, so it started with the vision that these molecules could be important. So we in license some technology, we developed some technology, but let's say for the first couple of years, the company was a paper company. We were acquiring technology, but early 1999, we signed our first collaboration with Sharing again at the time. Now Sharing is part of Bayer, but at the time it was an independent company. And we actually worked for 12 years in a growing collaboration with Sharing Again. And my brothers were operational full-time in the company. I continued to work as a professor at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. 
providing advice until the company had grown so much and the products had advanced that I took the courage actually to leave a, a very good position in a university, which is my alma mater, mm-hmm. and work full time in the company, hoping to bring our products to the market. But it all started and continued with the vision that the products could be useful. And we have always tried to do best out of these technologies and what we have done in the following years. Yeah. I, I, so I, so I need you to ask a follow-up on this because, you know, when, when I look at uh, the companies that I, that I interview, uh, obviously, I mean, it goes without saying, this is the first time I've had a conversation with the CEO of a biotech company that was founded by uh by he and his two brothers. I mean, this is a, you know, truly a family affair and what an outstanding family, right? I mean, what's the backstory there? Do, do you, do you all come from a, a, an academic or, 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 or medical family? How do you, how do you end up in, in a, in a situation? Now, obviously when I look over your left shoulder for anyone who's watching this interview on, on video, when I look over your left shoulder, I guess the odds may have been stacked in your favor, given the fact that there's a very large family uh, portrait over your left shoulder. Uh, so, so maybe the odds were a little better, given that you had a lot of a lot to start with. But so, sort of, yeah, tell it's, me how, it's, yeah, how'd that come to pass that that you and your your two brothers found yourselves uh, both both academically uh, astute uh, and, and, and in position to create a, a biopharma company. Well, it's probably a very Italian story and family plays a big part of it. But actually, my my great-grandfather was already treating patients in 1899 with antibody therapeutics. He was the first man to use antisera to treat anthrax patients. Um, and he started a company which was very successful. And at some stage, it was sold. It became Chiron, then Novartis. Now it's part of uh, GSK vaccine. And so, uh, and my father used to work uh, in that company and always encouraged the sons to, to do something in the pharmaceutical sector. We happen to have complementary skills. I am a chemist by training. Duccio, who was the CEO for the first two, 24 years, uh, studied business administration and the third brother has a phd in biotechnology so in a way the 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 family setting helped uh, but in the end it was work that we did together with many talented collaborators to whom we are very grateful yeah well that's a it's a, the the fact that uh you know you've got a, a handful of uh phase 3 candidates and have made it this far as a testament not only to your your leadership and your and your business skills, uh, but also your family ties. I mean, the the, you know, the fact that these three brothers have survived being in business together for as long as, as you have and made such great progress progress. It's a it's a testament to the Neri family. Well, most kind. I mean, the the vision was always a very simple one, uh, but an important one. I think there are opportunities in delivering therapeutics to the site of disease. This is something that already Paul Ehrlich, 100 years ago, had envisioned. This Sauberkugel, these magic bullets that go target the disease tissue and help spare normal tissues. It's, it's a simple concept, yet it has to be played with the right tools. First of all, if you want to do targeted delivery, it's important to know that the in vivo selectivity is good and 
nuclear medicine can be very important for really checking whether the molecules have the selectivity that you require for a certain intervention. And, and, and then everything else follows. Once we have good ligands for pharmacodelivery, be them antibodies or be them small molecules, then there are opportunities for cancer therapy with cytokine payloads, with radionuclides, with drugs, but probably also beyond oncology because the need for pharmacodelivery is actually very real for many indications. So this is in a nutshell, always the vision of ligand-based pharmacodelivery, uh, playing with the best possible tools for ligand discovery helps. But mm -hmm. it's, it's a complex operation from discovery to manufacturing to clinical trials. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, so it's a complex operation and it's also, uh, you know, once you probably move the, the further away from discovery that you move, the further away from maybe, uh, and I don't want to make any assumptions here, but the further away, maybe from your comfort zone in academia, you move. Um, so tell me a little bit about that, just from your, your, you know, personal reflections on this transition from such a long and decorated career in academia to, to the business world. Um, I'm assuming this was your, your first entrepreneurial endeavor. Um, yeah, just, just give me some sense for how that's affected you personally uh, and how you've sort of managed that transition. Oh, yes, it has not been an easy transition because I am an academic at heart. I really do love discovery and I have this dream that actually one can do very good discovery in academia, but also in biotech. And I don't see this division. So it's all about hopefully working on important problems and having the right tools. So I've been privileged really to have good teachers and I've tried to copy my teachers as much as possible. So both Kurt Wüttrich and Sir Gregory Winter did not win the Nobel Prize by chance. They were very good and they worked very hard. And I always wanted to develop drugs and Sir Gregory is... Uh, really a role model in this uh, regard because he is not only a first-class scientist, but he has created important medicines like his co-inventor in Umira, Campath One, and other important medicines. But he has also started successful companies such as Cambridge Antibody Technology, now part of AstraZeneca, or Domantis, or more recently, Bicycle, that was co-founded with one of my former PhD students, Christian Heinis. So over the years, I think I've seen good persons like Sir Gregory starting important operations. I've always encouraged my students to blow their own trumpet and start their own companies. Some of these companies have been very successful, mm -hmm. but I have always worked on one industrial operation that was Philogen, as long as it was possible to be both a uh, university professor and uh, be associated with a company. I've done it. Then when we brought the company to the stock exchange, I think it was sensible to, to do only one thing, also to avoid conflicts of interest. And so with a few months of notice, we planned a smooth transition so that the PhD students could finish their PhD. In total, I've trained 85 PhD students. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And and then at some stage, in 2020, I moved full-time to the company where I now serve as CEO and also chief scientific officer. So it, it was a change from a comfort zone. Academia <laughs> is, is great, but if you want to bring a product to the market, uh, this has to be done in the industrial setting. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, and there's probably uh, some expectation that you carry on that uh, longstanding family legacy that dates back to your great great grandfather. You know, working in uh, the, in the farm industry. So excellent. You, and you've you've been able to live both the best of both worlds. Do you miss teaching at all? Do you miss academia? I uh, I'm still associated with ETH, and so I still uh, carry a professor title, and I still teach therapeutic proteins. We tried within the company to have a very academic structure with PhD students and also with visiting scientists. So I still do teaching, but to be 100% honest, to me, there is not a big difference making research in industry or in academia, as long as the spirit is the same. And I've seen it happening in other good companies. When I think of Cambridge Antibody Technology, but also Genentech, especially the the, the Genentech in the in, in the first, in the old times. I mean, that was a clear environment where people could do great industrial research and then become a professor. And I, I, I think it, it's good if there is some osmosis between these two realities, you know, industry and academia. Sure. Yeah. 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 We we've had plenty of conversations with uh, both academics and and folks on the business side over the over the years uh you know where the 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 gap between those two worlds has been lamented in, in some in some fashion but it's it's great to see advocates like you who've experienced uh both sides of that coin and not just both sides but the as you said the osmosis sort of the the meshing um it, it, it's great to talk with someone who who brings that perspective uh of of collaboration between the two the two sides um uh, I, I was going to ask you. So, so you're uh, you, you you fancy yourself or call yourself a, a Swiss a Swiss Italian biotech. So, I, I just kind of want to get a sense for that. Um, what why why Switzerland and Italy and what is the I guess market? What what does the biotech market look like in that region? So basically. As mentioned, the company started with discoveries that were made the first in the UK and then in Switzerland. And I've been a professor at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich for 26 years now. So there are strong Swiss roots. But in Italy, very early on, we could buy a GMP production facility. So we started doing manufacturing in Italy very early on. We set up a clinical development organization, and we ended up really running clinical trials in the United States, at present also in 13 European countries, and soon hopefully also in Australia. So uh, you do things when and where you have good opportunities. We had opportunity to do good discovery in Switzerland, and we continue running most of our discovery programs in Switzerland. In Italy, we do GMP manufacturing. We have just completed the construction of a second GMP manufacturing facility uh, intended for commercial operations. And we run clinical trials uh, in collaboration with hopefully the best clinical centers worldwide. So it's Swiss, Italian, and 
I have lived out of Italy for the last 35 years, but one year ago, I, I relocated to Italy and I spent maybe two thirds of my time in, in Italy and one third in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent. Uh, one of the things that strikes me about your company uh, is, is the depth of, of your pipeline. You've uh, you've got dozens and do, you have dozens of candidates, uh, at least three in in phase three clinical trials, if I if I read that right, and another seven in phase two. Um, so I guess give me a, a sense of your portfolio strategy. The, it, as I said, it, it it's deep, it's advanced in, in many respects. Um, it's which is somewhat you know somewhat uncommon. We see a lot of companies that maybe have a more a more uh, narrow. Uh, pipeline. Um, so tell me what, what the strategy is there in terms of the the, the depth and, and I guess, uh, speed of advancement of, of your candidates. Um, thanks a lot. Um, we, we have two products which are more advanced than the other ones, and they're called Needlegy and Fibromon. Needlegy is a dermato-oncology product that initially we developed uh, in uh, stage 3 BC melanoma, and we saw and published what I consider to be strong phase two clinical data. And we see an opportunity for patients, especially with recurrent stage three melanoma disease, because these patients come back with the disease at some stage, they move to stage four disease, which is unfortunately a nasty disease, and you want to block the, um, the disease at that stage. So we had strong phase two data. We have launched phase three clinical trials in Europe and in the United States. And uh, especially in Europe, uh, we are very close to completion of recruitment of a trial with 214 patients. So we are trying our best. Um, once we saw uh, the efficacy of the product on these superficial melanoma lesions, we thought, okay, why don't we give it also to other skin conditions which are nasty and usually receive, require surgery, such as high-risk basal cell carcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma of the skin. And so the melanoma results triggered the, then pivotal phase two clinical trials in non-melanoma skin cancer. For fibromon, it's a similar concept. Fibromon is an antibody TNF fusion. So it's a fusion protein that delivers tumor necrosis factor to the tumor. We have studied it for many years, first as monotherapy and then in combination. And at some stage, we had signals of clinical activity in soft tissue sarcoma and in glioblastoma. And these are really underserved indications. They are nasty indications where typically standard of care drugs don't work. Uh, They don't induce objective response and they typically don't cure patients. We saw an opportunity. So we saw that we were curing mice with this disease, also with orthotopic models. Then we moved the products to the clinic. We were encouraged by what we saw. And now we are pushing really with a lot of energy in um, trials with a pivotal potential, hopefully bringing the products to the market. Let me mention that in glioblastoma multiform, especially in patients with recurrent disease uh, with unmethylated MGMT promoter, really the response rate to standard of care lomustin is usually 0%. 
So you have, unfortunately, a nasty disease and the standard of care doesn't even shrink the tumor. Mm -hmm. We have reported now objective responses uh, in a number of patients. And so we are obviously very motivated to, 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 to get the real picture from these large studies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're doing this. Another thing that strikes me uh, as, as interesting and worth discussion is that you're doing this all in-house. You're set up for discovery, development, manufacturing uh, in your own, as you mentioned, now two uh, Italian CGMP uh, manufacturing facilities. Describe to me how the organizational structure enables that. How have you set the company up from an organizational standpoint to be able to manage such a a deep and diverse uh, pipeline internally, cradle to grave? I, I think we have an integrated company from discovery to manufacturing to phase three clinical trials. We don't have yet products on the market, so we don't have sales force. But over the last 26 years, we grew these activities. Maybe we could have gone faster, but at least we grew them organically. And now we have these skills within the company uh, the, the, the next big challenge, of course, is to show that our products reach the endpoints in the pivotal trials, and then the next chapter will start, which is whether we take the extra commitment of trying to manufacture the products ourselves or else find alternative structures. That's still a topic of active discussion within the company, and soon we will reach decisions on this matter. When you're striving to excel in a new arena, the best guides are the ones already doing it well. The business of biotech brings those voices forward to help new and emerging biopharmas turn their innovations, like mRNA and cell and gene therapies, into clinical realities. Tune in and subscribe for insights on hiring, regulatory, and other need-to-know topics for biopharma leaders. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva. Check out their resources at Cytiva.com backslash Emerging Biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com backslash Emerging Biotech. Yeah. So to, to date, though, like to support clinical trials, that, that manufacturing is taking taking place in-house. Is it, uh, I mean, is so is that uh, is that manufacturing capacity um, uh, let me let me pose it to you this way: the 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 current uh, manufacturing capacity to support clinical trials, to make the transition and and, and scale up to to commercial uh, capacity, um, would it be a, a a great big giant leap? Looking at the the, the big markets and patient demand that that you uh, that that you serve or that you intend to serve. No, we have built the second GMP production facility exactly with this vision. We are facilitated by the fact that cytokine-based therapeutics are highly potent drugs, and they usually don't require a lot of material. You know that cytokines were maybe not very fashionable 10 years ago. Uh, we started working in the field 20 years ago, and now they have become probably one of the hottest areas of biotechnology. Uh, but again, typically our cytokine-based therapeutics are given in the single milligram, single digit milligram dose. For example, fibromone is given at one milligram per patient. Mm -hmm. And so this actually facilitates the opportunity to manufacture these antibody cytokine fusions for a global market. The fusion proteins are produced by mammalian cells. 
they are purified straight out of the supernatant. They don't require chemical conjugation. And so if you if you make the comparison, you know, a typical anti-CD20 antibody given at 800 milligram per patient or an antibody cytokine fusion given at one milligram per patient, then it becomes easier even for a younger company like Philogen to, to set up the process uh, and to be in control also of manufacturing. Okay. Yeah. So, so moving backwards, sort of on that, uh, the, the chronology of, the, of, of this, of this questioning, uh, this line of questioning um, for, at a development um, at, at the development stage, back when you were working on your first development projects as Philogen, right? Uh, was it a conscious decision, a strategic decision to say, yeah, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to go to a CDMO. We're going to, we, we have, you know, we have the, the intellectual capacity and the facilities uh, infrastructure to handle development on our own. And that's what we prefer to do. So what, what was the thinking back then? No, it's exactly as you say it. And also it's this feeling, not only we have the know-how of how to produce these products, but also there is in the end an advantage in terms you control the quality speed so you don't rely on having to finalize collaborations and once you have set it up and this is obviously a barrier to the entry but once you have set it up then there is also a, a cost saving factor plus you can do manufacturing also for partners and so this is one of the things I'm most proud of. We took the effort of setting it up and we all know how regulated GMP manufacturing is. Mm -hmm. But once this is available, it facilitates really the discovery of new molecules. It allows you to fail. Occasionally we have molecules that are not as good as we hope, but you know, having the opportunity to fail more often hopefully gives us the opportunity to be successful one day. Yeah, yeah, I, I I like that transparency. Uh, on the clinical side, are you uh, are you are you managing managing to date your your clinical trials internally as well? Or are you working with the CRO on on those? No, we it's a mixture. For countries which are closer to Italy and Switzerland, we normally also do all the monitoring ourselves. But for example, for operations in the United States or in Eastern Europe, then we rely on CROs. Yeah, well, I would, you know, you would think you said that you've got clinical trials happening in in the U.S., thirteen European countries, and and soon Australia. That would be, it would quite, it would it would require quite a geographic distribution of your of your organization to manage all that internally. That we 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 don't do. So for countries that are best operated through CROs, we work with CROs. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I've read about a number of drug discovery collaborations your company struck with companies like J and J and AbbVie, Novartis, Behringer, Ingelheim, and others. And, and I'm curious about that. Um, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions around that. One, like what do what do you what what do you think is um, key to establishing relationships with with companies of of those you know of, of that caliber? Uh, and and how do those collaborative agreements play into your company's uh, strategy or, or go forward mission? Um, you know, all our programs start with the discovery of ligands, be them human antibodies or be them small organic molecules isolated from DNA encoded chemical libraries. So I think we have always been strong 
at creating large encoded uh, libraries. So I learned antibody phage technology when working with Sir Gregory, and we have made human antibodies for the last 30 years. We have been among the first to work on DNA encoded chemical libraries. We probably published the first ever paper on the construction and screening of DNA encoded chemical libraries 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So, uh, since we generate ligands out of our libraries, and it has happened that companies would either seek our help for discovery, which we would do, or maybe we had the ligands that they would need for pharmacodelivery programs. And some of these products have actually moved to the clinic. And I think it's a nice addition. We are still focused and dedicated to our pipeline. But for example, we have a collaboration with Pfizer in the field of chronic inflammation. That's possibly more complex field than oncology because trials tend to be larger and have different requirements. And so this is a nice integration. And sometimes we do fee-for-service discovery, if we can help our partners. Sometimes these are license and collaboration agreements, uh, but it all starts hopefully with excellence in the discovery of ligands, in the discovery of prototypes. And most of our industrial collaborations have been consecutive contracts in the sense that after the first collaboration, we have signed additional agreements with our partners. Mm -hmm. Okay. Have those uh, have those collaborative agreements um, propelled the I guess the the advance from a, even from a, a monetary and funding standpoint of the company internally? I mean, have they been key to that? Uh, I guess that that strategy. Very much so, because we started the company back in 1996 without venture capital. We never needed venture capital to grow the company. We were cash flow positive uh, every single year between 1999 and 2019. And this was thanks to the industrial collaborations. At some stage in 2019, when the pivotal trials were starting, we knew that we had to spend more. And then we found additional funds uh, from the capital market. So with an equity investment in 2019 and then with the IPO in 2021. But we always try to have a balanced operation. And I think collaborations are important, not only as an opportunity to learn, but also as a source of revenues. And it's it's also a reality check to see if and when we are good enough for, for the partner. Yeah. It's it's an interesting conversation and one that I haven't I haven't dug too deep into this uh, and, and learned about how those collaborations work. But I'm so so I'm just going to ask you. I, I'm curious about how um, you know it, are those most often a case where you know some of those bigger players in the space come come knocking on your door, you know, to to see what you're up to and what you're doing if there's anything of interest to them, or is it an active uh, pitching uh, exercise on the part of of Philogen to go out there and say, hey, look what we've got. Um, you know, th 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 this is something we're interested in in, in collaborating on. I, it, it's both. Uh, there have been opportunities triggered by publications. That's why I always stress, you know, this 
research dimension of the company, I still think the best business development instrument is a good publication. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there have been, of course, opportunities where you go and visit companies and sometimes you hear no thanks <laughs> and sometimes actually the partner is intrigued and then the collaboration starts. So I still think good science and hopefully good publications are key to business development, especially for small, medium-sized companies. But I'm sure there are many different ways of, of doing this. This is just the way we did it for the last 26 years. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Um, and, and how does that, I guess, how, how do those opportunities, it, it, it occurs to me that as the business leader, you know, uh, t- taking off the science hat for a minute and thinking strictly about moving, moving the business forward and, and, and making sure that you're moving the business forward in a way that aligns with your original intention. Um, the more, the more collaborative interest there is, uh, I, I would think the more opportunity there might be to sort of derail the the end goal of of taking a proprietary candidate all the way to the the commercial finish line because certainly there's been you know opportunities for for out licensing and and selling off assets where there's interest so give me give me a little flavor on that how you balance that sort of you know in your CEO hat how you how you balance that line as you as you move forward. We, we try to have an open mind on this matter. If what is best for the product is to have a strong commercial partner with a track record in a given indication, that is probably a, a good strategy. But if we believe that our products are good and uh, uh, we have to make the next step in the growth of the company, which is really become a fully integrated company, then then we will take this challenge and we will try and learn and maybe make mistakes. But the product drives everything. If the product is good, then the trials go as well as the preliminary clinical trials suggest that then, of course, you you have the ambition to, to bring them to the market yourself. And that's something that at least for some of our products, we will do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, has has that been the the goal from the outset to carry that ball all the way to the the commercial finish line? At least, you know, or, or, or I should say, maybe plural, multiple candidates. I think the the real ambition is to have the product approved and broadly used. And for the rest, we are not dogmatic. Uh, we try not to be dogmatic about partnering and also, but. We, we are very passionate about science. And uh, when we see this early signs of activity, then <laughs> we want to go to the next chapter. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, and I know this is a, this is a difficult question to answer, but answer, but uh, I'll, I'll ask you anyway uh, to share. Um, so you've got a, like I said, a few stage three uh, cl- clinical phase three, that is clinical uh, candidates. Um What's next for for those candidates? And dare dare I ask, you know, uh, uh, looking out on the horizon, how how far do you feel you are from uh, achieving that approval goal? So, you know, the the most advanced products are obviously Nidlegi and Fibromon. Nidlegi is approaching completion of recruitment of phase three in Europe. So soon it will read out. That will be a big moment for the company. We have past two interim analysis that were foreseen in the program, in the protocol. So we are obviously very excited. And uh, non-melanoma skin cancer is something that 
typically products in this indication as are approved after phase two. So you can actually see the effects because you're treating superficial conditions. And that's again, something where we regularly present pictures to investors to show how the drug is working. So this is the need ledger situation. For uh, Fibromon, we are trying very hard uh, to complete uh, recruitment for the first pivotal trials, both in soft tissue sarcoma and in glioblastoma by the end of 2023. So that's also approaching quite soon. And there is a last product I would like to mention or better a technology, which is called OncoFAP. We have recently disclosed and published that small molecule high affinity ligands to FAP they are just fantastic targeting agents for many different types of tumors. We have published this striking ability to selectively localize to many different types of malignancies. Just one hour after the injection of the molecule, you basically see the tumor and nothing else. Mm. And this, of course, enables, even though this is early stage, the results for imaging are already mature. And so there we see an acceleration opportunity for imaging for radionuclide therapy, and also for this growing field of small molecule drug conjugates that probably will be a nice complement to ADCs. Now the world is crazy about antibody drug conjugates, but what you can do with antibodies often, you can do maybe even better with small ligands that go to the tumor fast. They are certainly cheaper to manufacture and they seem to have better tumor to organ ratio in vivo. Mm -hmm. From a scientific perspective, you know, what you just described, um, you know, you, 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 um, you, you crossed several sort of, I don't know if modalities is the right word, but areas of, you know, therapeutic, I I guess, intent, um, has, has it been your position, you know, even back to your academic days to be sort of, um, agnostic, if, if you will, uh, around, the approach that you're willing to embrace, or in the case of the business, the candidate that you're willing to invest development resources into, or the molecule that you're willing to invest development resources into, uh, and potentially move into the pipeline. And, and, and if, if so, is that, is that difficult to do as a scientist? I mean, you know, you think of a scientist and you think of uh, typically uh, a person who has a very sort of narrow research focus, uh, kind of lives in, in a certain silo, if you will. Um, so just give me a little flavor on that. Are you open to, to, to the approach or are there guardrails that you feel like you need to stay within? We have two rules that we follow very strictly, uh, which are, we like to stay out of the cell. So we like very much this concept of pharmaco delivery, Mm-hmm. So ligand-based pharmacodelivery and trying to operate the pharmaceutical approaches from outside the cell. Mm-hmm. And because anything you try to do with intracellular targets, it's probably an extra level of complexity. So there we have been very diligent. And the other one is really harness the potential of large encoded libraries. So for everything starts with discovery of ligands, and we have always invested a lot on ligand discovery. But for the indications, we have been more agnostic. So when we see a good opportunity, even if it's beyond oncology, which has always been a little bit our focus, we do it. And I really believe that this concept of anchoring payloads, bioactive payloads at the site of disease 
really is useful beyond oncology. There are, if I dream about the future opportunities, chronic inflammation, uh, autoimmunity, fibrosis, uh, osteoarthritis, you know, growing cartilage. These are some of the dreams for the future. If we are able to anchor payloads at the site of disease, maybe with a little bit of luck, we will increase the therapeutic activity and help spare normal tissue. So this has been the general theme, but for the indication, we are more open. Yeah, yeah. You, so there's this general theory and then a, a world of opportunity, many, many, I'm sure, un, yet undiscovered uh, for, for that approach. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, what, what am I not asking you about uh, Philogen that is central to, to the story, to the, to the life that you're living right now that you'd like to share with us about the company? I think you've asked a lot of good questions and I hope I've given you candid and open answers, um, the next will be written in the clinical trials. If we reach our goals, uh, then I will be truly, truly uh, satisfied. Uh, and I will feel that all the work, not only of my family, but all the collaborators was worth. And uh, But it's working progress. I want to be very honest on this matter. We are trying hard. Well, yeah, it goes without saying. I we, you know, I I spend uh, I spend most of my days interviewing uh, executives from emerging and and mid clinical stage, typically biopharma companies, and and you know, we we all know that it's uh it's it's works work in progress, and the day the the devil's in the in the details of the data. Um, fascinating story, though. I mean, just a fascinating story. The, you know, the, the, the genesis of the company, the, the family history in, in the business. Um, it feels as though success is your only option. It's as though it's written in history and written in the stars. So I'm, I'm rooting for you, rooting for you, Dr. Neri. What, uh, what, what's next for you, for you personally? I mean, obviously this mission is yet to be achieved. You're going to stay there and, and continue doing the hard work that you're doing. Um, and seeing that through. Uh, but, you know, you've had a very distinguished career to date. You've done a, a lot of a lot of stuff. What, what do you see kind of happening, let's say, uh, post, uh, po- post phase, phase three clinical on, on, on your three uh, leading candidates? You know, challenges will continue. We hopefully, if we bring products to the market, as we hope and aim for, then we will have to grow commercial operations. I follow research very closely, very, very closely. And that has not changed over the years. So next week I am, I will be 59 years old. I still like what I do. And so I think that's what I will keep doing for the coming years. Well, excellent. And, ha- and happy birthday. Happy early. Birthday. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Thank you. I was born on May 1st, which in Italy is Labor's Day. So I, I'll try to work well and hard also in the coming uh-huh. years. Yeah, I'm sure you will. And you look you look great for 59. <laughs> Lost my hair. And so I have my brothers, <laughs> if I can say. <laughs> Well, uh, Dr. Neri, thank you for joining us. It's been a, been a pleasure to talk with you and, and get an update on the company and learn about what you're doing. Uh, continued good work to you. And, and thanks again. Thanks a lot for the interview. Bye-bye. So that's Philogen's Dr. Dario Neri. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva. 
Check out Cytiva's Biotech Accelerator, built for the leaders of new and emerging biotech at Cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. Check us out and sign up for my newsletter at bioprocessonline.com. And if you're enjoying listening in on conversations with brilliant innovators like Dr. Neri, please subscribe, slide all the way to the right, give us a five-star review. And as always, thank you for listening.